Section 31 of The Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The long day's task is done. I have put for convenience my general account of the two home rule measures of Mr. Gladstone into a single chapter. The home rule measure of 1886 was defeated because of the secession of a number of liberals who found or professed to find their strong objection to the bill in the fact that it excluded Ireland from representation in the Parliament at Westminster. The second Home Rule measure was introduced to meet and amend this special objection. Ireland was to have a representation of 80 members in the Imperial House of Commons, that number being her exact representation in proportion to the population. But these Irish members were not to vote on any measure exclusively affecting Great Britain. By this alteration of his former measure, Mr. Gladstone hoped to be able to get over two sets of objections. The first was the objection of those who complained of Ireland's being taxed by the Imperial Parliament without representation. The second was the objection of those who complained that whereas the English members could not interfere in the affairs of Ireland, Irish members might come over to the Imperial Parliament and interfere in the affairs of England. In the interval between the rejection of the first Home Rule measure by the House of Commons and the introduction of the second scheme, many things had happened. There had, for example, been a great split in the Irish party which had led to the deposition of Mr. Parnell from the leadership. Many of the best friends in England of Home Rule were afraid that the principal had for our time at least received a death blow. Mr. Gladstone was not of any such opinion. When he became Prime Minister for the fourth time, he at once resumed his policy of Home Rule. On Monday, the 14th of February, 1893, Mr. Gladstone introduced his bill for the better government of Ireland. The bill was met with every possible method of obstruction. Mr. Gladstone's energy, enthusiasm, and eloquence triumphed over all opposition. The debates on the various stages of the bill spread over practically the whole of the session. The bill at last was carried through the House of Commons and in September was sent up to the House of Lords. The House of Lords disposed of it after four nights' debate and rejected it by a majority of more than ten to one. Mr. Gladstone might on the whole have been well content. The peers reject every great reform measure which comes before them for the first time. They never resist for long. They yield when they see that public opinion is determined. Many of Mr. Gladstone's followers insisted then that he ought to have appealed to the country at once on the one question of home rule. Mr. Gladstone no doubt had good reasons for not appealing to the country once again just at that moment. But the strength of the government was undoubtedly diminished by the defeat of the Home Rule Bill, and by the inaction that followed that defeat. 
the government got into conflict with the House of Lords on two or three measures of purely social and municipal interest. There did not seem force enough left in the House of Commons to thrust these measures on the hereditary chamber. In one instance, Mr. Gladstone himself withdrew a bill because it seemed hopeless to press it against the hostile action of the House of Lords. There was a sort of languor, almost a kind of despondency, spreading itself like dry rot among the ranks of the Liberal Party. A keen observer might well have seen that a crisis of some sort was near. A crisis was indeed near, much nearer than most of us then imagined. The House of Commons adjourned on the 21st of September, 1893, for a very short recess. Mr. Gladstone, who had been unflagging in his attendance at all the sittings, determined that the House must meet again on the 2nd of November. The House did so meet, and with only a short interval of Christmas holidays, sat up to the 5th of March, 1894. Mr. Gladstone had been enjoying a short holiday at Biarritz, a favorite holiday place of his, and he came back to the house at the end of February. During his absence, persistent rumors had been going about in London to the effect that he had made up his mind to resign his office as Prime Minister. These assertions were contradicted now and again in a guarded sort of way by persons who professed to have Mr. Gladstone's authority for the contradictions. Meanwhile, a good many of us were allowed to know that Mr. Gladstone's mind was, at all events, gradually and earnestly turning toward a decision for his early resignation. Yet the outer public somehow thought little of the rumors and perhaps found it almost impossible to believe that there could be, in our time, a House of Commons without Mr. Gladstone. Mr. Lucy has described the occasion on the 1st of March, 1894, when Mr. Gladstone made his last speech at the table of the House of Commons in the capacity of Prime Minister. While the House, says Mr. Lucy, was crowded to its fullest capacity, it did not surely know what was happening. The air was full of rumors but the immediate effect of the speech was to discredit the supposition that resignation was imminent, that it had been decided upon and must take place at an early date was accepted as inevitable. There was indeed one passage forming the closing words of this memorable speech that, read by the light of subsequent events, plainly indicated Mr. Gladstone's position, that of a knight who had laid down his well-worn sword hung up his dinted armor, content thereafter to look on the lists where others strove. The House of Lords, in accentuation of an attitude long assumed, had, he said, within the last twelve months, shown itself ready not to modify but to annihilate the work of the House of Commons. In our judgment, Mr. Gladstone said slowly and emphatically, this state of things cannot continue. After a pause, necessitated by the vociferous cheering of the liberals, he added, For me, my duty terminates with calling the attention of the House to the fact that it really is impossible to set aside that we are considering a part, an essential and inseparable part, of a question enormously large, 
a question that has become profoundly acute, a question that will command a settlement and must at an early date receive that settlement from the highest authority. That question was, of course, the jurisdiction of the House of Lords. The matter immediately before the House of Commons was not one of supreme importance, but still it involved a conflict between the representative chamber and the hereditary chamber. Mr. Gladstone's home rule scheme had been destroyed for the time by the action of the House of Lords, and his mind must have gone back to many a crisis when some great scheme of reform had been retarded in its movement by the same irresponsible authority. Observe that the House of Lords is not really capable of preventing any great measure from being carried in the end. It can only retard and obstruct, and it always gives way when pressure enough has been put on it to make it clear that the public are becoming impatient of its intervention. Even if one could believe that the whole country belonged to the peers and the landlords, there would still be no justification for the existence and operation of the House of Lords inasmuch as the peers always give way when public indignation becomes too strong to be resisted. Mr. Gladstone had fought against the House of Lords on many a momentous occasion of his public life. It was but fitting that he should take leave of public life with an announcement that the time had come when the country must pronounce a decisive opinion on the position of the House of Lords. Yet it was not understood in the House of Commons, at least by the majority of those who listened to him, that that was to be Mr. Gladstone's last utterance in the assembly where he had been conspicuous for so many years. As Mr. Lucy puts it, looking on the upright figure standing by the brass-bound box, watching the mobile countenance, the free gestures, noting the ardor with which the flag was waved, leading to a new battlefield, it was impossible to associate the thought of resignation with the Premier's mood. So indeed it happened that in the House of Commons few were those who knew that that was Mr. Gladstone's farewell to public life. If it had been known, the excitement and emotion in the House would have been something without parallel or precedent in our times but there was nothing of a farewell tone about the speech, nothing tragic, nothing even purposely pathetic, and, as Mr. Lucy says, the flag seemed to be waved leading to a new battlefield. Some of us, of course, were in the secret, or at least were vaguely forewarned of what we had to expect. Shortly after Mr. Gladstone sat down, I met Mr. John Morley in one of the lobbies. Is that, then, I asked? the very last speech? The very last, was his reply. I don't believe one quarter of the men in the house understood it so, I said. No, he replied, but it is so all the same. Another man, not Mr. Gladstone, would probably on such an occasion have made it plain that he was giving his farewell to the assembly which he had charmed and over which he had dominated by his eloquence for so many years. Lord Chatham certainly would not have allowed himself to pass out of public life 
without conveying to all men the idea that he spoke in Parliament for the last time. But Mr. Gladstone, with all his magnificent rhetorical gift, and with all his dramatic instinct, had no thought of getting up a scene, had no thought of any tableau to proceed the fall of the curtain. He was no doubt thinking only of the duty which must soon devolve upon the representative chamber, the duty of putting some limitation on the intervention of the House of Lords. Engrossed with that thought and eager to stir the House of Commons to a full sense of its responsibilities and its duties, he not unnaturally conveyed the idea to the majority of his audience that he was to lead a new campaign. The mind of at least one of his listeners went back to the day when more than thirty years before he had denounced the conduct of the House of Lords in preventing the repeal of the tax on paper as a gigantic innovation which the representative chamber was bound to resist. As he had taken upon himself the leadership of that movement on the part of the House of Commons in 1860, it was not unnatural that, by the kindling energy of his manner, when he spoke in that March of 1894, he should have led most people to believe that he was ready for the battle again. Certainly there was nothing in his apparent physical energy, in his voice, in his gesture, in his manner, to indicate that he found himself unfitted for any further parliamentary struggle. More than twenty years before, he had formally resigned the leadership of the Liberal Party on the ground that he was outworn and could no longer continue the fight. Yet, on the first moment, when a great public crisis aroused the attention of the civilized world, he had come back, almost as a matter of course, to take his place at the head of the struggle. It could not therefore be wondered at if many men in the House of Commons, seeing the extraordinary vitality of the Prime Minister, should have thought that there was no greater reason why he should give up political life at the age of eighty-four than there had proved to be when for a short time he forsook it at the age of sixty-four. The truth is that we had all grown into the way of regarding Mr. Gladstone as a sort of being endowed with immortal youthfulness and vitality. The outer public, even the majority of members of the House of Commons, did not know that the sight of those luminous eyes had been fading and dimming, and that the statesman's hearing power had been giving way so much as to make official work a serious trial to him. We heard his voice, we noted his energy of movement and gesture, we were delighted by his thrilling eloquence, and we could not understand all in a moment why he should wish to retire from the field of his fame. So in the theatric sense, I should describe his last speech as a dramatic failure. Numbers of men lounged out of the house when the speech was over, not having the least idea that they were never again to hear that voice in parliamentary debate. Yet I, for one, do not regret that Mr. Gladstone thus took his leave of political life. I am not sorry that there were no fireworks, that there was no tableau, that there was no melodramatic fall of the curtain. The orator making his closing speech was inspired by his subject and was not thinking of himself. One single sentence interjected in the course of the speech 
would have told every one of his listeners what was coming and would have led to a demonstration such as has probably never been known in the House of Commons. It did not suit with Mr. Gladstone's tastes or inclinations to lead up to any such demonstration, and therefore while he warned the House of Commons as to its duties and its responsibilities, he said not a word about himself and about his action in the future. Parliamentary history lost something, no doubt, by the manner of his exhortation, but I think the character of the man will be regarded as all the greater, because, at so supreme a moment, he forgot that the noblest parliamentary career of the Victorian era had come at last to a close. On Monday, the 5th of March, 1894, I had what I may be allowed to call my last official interview with Mr. Gladstone. He wrote me a letter on the Saturday before, asking me to call and see him at twelve o'clock on Monday. He was still occupying his official chambers in Downing Street. He received me, as was his wont, with the greatest kindness and friendship. We talked over many things, the past, the present, and the future. He was full of brilliant talk, as he always could be when in the mood, and he wandered off away from the track of our subjects many times to bring in reminiscences of the past and of the men whom he had known, and of political storm and stress in which he had had a serious part to play. I could not but admire the wonderful elasticity of the mind which could thus, for a moment at least, shake itself quite free from the troubles of the present and the immediate future, and find a relief and a refuge in even the casual memories and anecdotes of much earlier days. We talked, as was natural, a good deal about home rule. He expressed a wish, such as he had often expressed before, to see some of us home rulers at Howarden Castle, and to talk over political prospects in a friendly and confidential way. He referred again and again to Mr. Parnell, and spoke of him, as he ever had done, with kindness and with consideration. Mr. Parnell's, he said, had been a really great career, one of the greatest in modern times, considering the limited materials with which he had to work, and he expressed, as I had often heard him express it before, his deep regret that such a career should have come to so tragic a close. I remember well that he found fault with one course of action taken by the Irish members, still under Mr. Parnell's leadership, while we were opposing one of Mr. Gladstone's own coercion measures. The story is interesting in so far as it illustrates the singular fairness and candor of the great statesman. He found no fault whatever with us, for opposing to the very uttermost his coercion policy, that he quite understood to be a part of our national duty. What he did complain of was that when an English liberal member proposed an amendment, making a certain division of the bill stronger and harsher than the government intended to make it, and when the government determined to oppose the amendment, we did not come and vote with them in opposition to it. The truth was that Mr. Parnell and a number of other Irish members, including myself, had been suspended, as the technical phrase went, from voting in the House for a certain limited time, 
because of our renewed acts of obstruction, and as we could not vote, our colleagues naturally declined to take any part in the division. Mr. Gladstone talked with the most perfect good humor about the whole affair, and only dwelt upon it as the one sole incident in the long struggle about which he thought he had a fair right to grumble at the conduct of the Irish members. He expressed to me over and over again his absolute conviction that the cause of home rule for Ireland was destined to succeed, and before very long. No measure, he said, of really national importance, which has passed by a safe majority through the House of Commons, can ever be long retarded by the resistance of the House of Lords. In words which, though really conversational, were as impressive to me as human eloquence could make them, he bade me tell my colleagues that his heart was ever with the success of our cause, and that he prayed for that success and gave it his blessing. I have not been often so much moved as by those words. I took leave of Mr. Gladstone as if I had been leaving some being who belonged to a higher order of the world than the commonplace existence of every day. I passed into St. James's Park feeling as though even the sunshine and the grass and the trees and the lake were commonplace things after such a farewell. I had one regret, and I cherish it still. I wish I had asked Mr. Gladstone to give me something from his desk or his table, a pen or a pencil or a book or anything, whatever, just as a mark and memory of the occasion. I have many letters from him, and he has sent me several times some pamphlet which he has written or in which he has felt a special interest. But I should like to have got something from him in memory of that last official interview. The meeting was, to use Carlyle's expression, not easily to be forgotten in this world. Since then, I have not seen Mr. Gladstone. The House of Commons is nothing like the place that it was when he was there. The Irish people feel that they have lost in him a friend and a guide whose place is never likely to be filled again in our time. I felt all that as I was taking leave of him on that memorable day. Since the time of Charles James Fox, Ireland never had had a distinct and an avowed friend amongst the men who made up administrations or led oppositions in the English House of Commons until we came to the days of Mr. Gladstone. Nor had Fox himself obtained even the chance of making such a move on our behalf as was made and sustained by Mr. Gladstone. I do not ask all my readers to agree with my views about home rule, but I do ask them to take what I say as the sincere expression of Irish opinion with regard to the English statesmen who risked everything, place, power, popularity, all that which could make life dear to any ambitious man, for the sake of serving a country so poor and so lowly that it could offer for such services no reward whatever but the reward of gratitude. I was thinking of all this when I came out of the official residence in Downing Street and passed into St. James's Park and felt as if I had been looking on at the fall of a dynasty. End of chapter 31